Take out your Bibles if you would. Let's look together once again at Genesis 45. Genesis 45. I can't seem to get us out of this chapter, but we will eventually get out of Genesis 45. But it is, it is the, the central chapter, I think, the most pivotal chapter, or at least the clearest chapter in our study of Joseph and his brothers on the primary doctrine being taught here, the doctrine of providence. And so let's look at it again. Genesis 45, beginning in verse 16. I was just praying for the Spirit to come and to work, and I was thinking of the Spirit as described in the Bible as a wind, and I was just saying, Lord, send Him like a rushing wind. Let Him be a rushing wind among us this morning to give us life and open eyes, and I pray that He will. Genesis 45, verse 16. Verse 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave three hundred shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. And then he sent his brothers away and as they departed he said to them, I think with a smile on his face, do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. When they told him all the words of Joseph, and when he had said to them, and which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So can you imagine Jacob's old face looking towards the horizon and seeing this caravan suddenly coming his way? Remember, Jacob had sent his sons to Egypt begrudgingly. It was not what he wanted to do for them to all go. In Jacob's mind, his beloved son Joseph has been dead all these many years, killed while away from home. His son Simeon was now locked up in an Egyptian prison. Benjamin, his youngest, now the apple of his eye, has been sent along with the other brothers. And based on what the brothers had told him, there was good reason to believe that they would be in danger in Egypt. Jacob does not know if his sons are ever going to return home. 
And if his sons don't return home, it will mean more than just their deaths. It will mean probably the deaths of their families because these families are waiting for food in the midst of this terrible famine. And so Jacob has been waiting for these boys to come home. He's been waiting. Certainly he's been looking to the horizon every day. Are they coming? And today he looks and here comes ten donkeys loaded with some of the finest delicacies and Egyptian housewares you've ever seen. And then behind those donkeys, there, there comes ten more female donkeys. The donkeys just keep coming and they're loaded with grain and they're loaded with bread and they're loaded with the, the staples that will be needed to, to support these families. And who is it that's with the camels? Well, Jacob begins to see his sons walking alongside the camels. I can imagine, I, I think he probably immediately began counting, right? He couldn't tell who they were yet, but he's, he's counting, right? Or how, how many are there? Are they, are, are they all right? Is, is Benjamin all right? Remember, he, he was really nervous about Benjamin going. Does he, yes, there's Benjamin. Benjamin's back. And then what, what about Simeon? Did they get Simeon out of prison? And he's looking, and there's Simeon. They, they got him out of, of prison. God has been good. God has been Good, And then maybe he notices that they're smiling and maybe a couple of the younger athletic ones come you know, running towards him and, and they have something to tell him. What, what is it, my sons? What, what is it you want to, to tell me? Spit it out. Joseph is alive. And immediately Jacob is just thrown. Right? We're told that, that his heart was numb. He did not believe them. Right? He, he did not believe them. Joseph is alive. Joseph is ruler over Egypt. What? This has to be some kind of cruel hoax. Joseph has been dead now for many years. I know he's, he's been dead for many years. What are you, what are you telling me? And, and then the other brothers come and they confirm the story and there's all the donkeys and there's all the housewares and there's all the food as, as evidence. And suddenly Jacob's heart is just overcome with, with how good God is being to him in this moment, how much joy. J- Jacob had said in, in passages past, he, he had said, I will go to the grave still grieving Joseph. And now Joseph is alive. And so there's this sweet peace that comes and he says, it is enough. I will go and I will see my son Joseph before I die. Isn't not a great story? I mean, it's just, it's just a wonderful chapter. I, I love this chapter and it's, it's very moving. Well, as I've said, Genesis 45 is the heart of this section of Scripture, and it's all about the doctrine of God's providence. Um, so, God has taken the wicked act of Joseph's brothers all those years ago, and He has used it to save their lives and to save their souls. God has used the sin that they committed years years ago to bring about their conversion and now to save their lives. They're actually going to come to Egypt and in the midst of this terrible famine, they are going to be radically blessed. Where do I get the truth that it is God who's doing this? Well, we've seen it three weeks now. We saw it in verse 5. We saw it in verse 7. We saw it in verse 8. It is God who did this. It was God who was working. Joseph looks at his brothers and says, God sent me to Egypt. And they're thinking, no, we sent you to Egypt. And he says, no, no, no. Yes, you were the immediate cause, but God was the ultimate cause. Right? God sent me to Egypt, and he did so to preserve many lives. So what is the truth of God's providence? It is the truth that God works all things according to the counsel of His own will. 
that God is not aloof from His creation, just the opposite. God is in His creation. He fills all things. He sustains all things. He is working in all things. There is no square inch of reality where God is not present, where God is not working. And God is working in every square inch of reality to accomplish His ultimate perfect plan, a plan that will put His own character on display, a plan that will glorify Himself in the hearts of His people. Now, so far we have seen three truths from this chapter about God's providence. The first truth that we saw is that God's providence extends even to the thoughts, the attitudes, the words, the actions of human beings. Okay? So we saw that God's sovereignty, His providence extends even to human beings. We must not think that somehow God's sovereign power is at work in every part of creation except the human will. The Bible will not allow us to talk that way. We must not think that our own ability to make choices, that our own ability to do what we want to do, somehow means that God has not preordained all that we say, think, and do. Every decision you make, Every thought that comes into your head, every word that you speak, these two were ordained by God and brought about according to His sovereign plan. You are not a robot. I am not a robot. You are still doing and thinking and making real choices. You're doing what you want to do. But God's wisdom is such that He has ordered all things in such a way that every free choice you make is perfectly concurrent with the choice He ordained for you to make. Like Shakespeare and Hamlet. Everything Hamlet did, He chose to do. And everything Hamlet chose to do, Shakespeare had scripted for Hamlet to do. And so maybe that helps. History is God's story. He writes it. We still live in it as the characters. We do what we want to do. But it's all been scripted. So we spent a whole sermon on that truth. Second, we also saw from this chapter that God's providence works good from evil. That God has ordained for evil to be a part of this world. God is not the author of evil. God takes no delight in evil. Evil is disgusting to God. Your sins, my sins are disgusting to God. But He has ordained that they exist within this world so that we may witness Him getting victory over evil, getting victory over sin, so that when we get to heaven, our hearts will have seen more of His glory, so that there is greater joy and greater worship to the glory of His name forever. By ordaining that evil be, God demonstrates for His own infinite enjoyment and for the good of His people, His own glorious righteousness and justice, His grace and His mercy, many other attributes of His character that you and I would never have seen and savored had evil not existed. We spent a whole message there as well. I'm kind of giving you the fire hose at the moment. Just... Are you, are you with me? Do you remember these things? Do you remember us talking about these things? All right. Then last week, we came to our third truth concerning God's providence, and that's where we still are. I think it's the one that's the most clearly taught in this passage, and it's that God's providence extends a special care towards God's people. That God's providence extends a special care towards God's people. God is not working all things for the good of all people. God is working all things for the good of His people. 
Our God is a discriminating God, and He is free to be so. He is the potter, we are the clay. He will be gracious to whom He will be gracious. And God's providence works in such a way that it always ultimately brings blessing to those who have humbled themselves and called upon Christ as Savior. God is working all to bless His people. We see in our passage how God had been especially working in some unusual and some surprising ways to bring about this day. To bring about this day when He would pour out blessing upon Israel, upon Israel's sons, upon their future descendants. God had begun working more than a decade before this moment in order to make sure that through Joseph, this family would get to safety and blessing in the midst of a famine that would put their lives at risk. Church, this is true for you and me as Christians as well. If you are a true believer in Christ, you can be sure that everything which God does in this universe, He does with a view towards your eternal happiness in Him. (laughs) Because it's all about Him. But it's all about His glory, and His glory has been ordered by God in such a way that it's tied to your joy in Him. His plan is for Him to receive eternal worship from you as He blows your mind with His glory, as He staggers your heart, as He causes you to be overwhelmed with who He is. And so He has ordered things in such a way that you will ultimately be forever eternally blessed beyond what you can imagine so that your heart will respond in worship and He will be glorified forever and ever. So how do we see God's providence working to bless His people? Last time we talked about God's providence in giving us life. Aren't you glad you're not an ugly toad? Aren't you glad God created you to be what you are, a human being, with the dignity that that means? Aren't you glad, as we saw last week, that God providentially worked to bring about your conversion? And we thought last week about all these things that God must have done to bring about a day when He would take this heart of stone and pull it out and replace it with a heart of flesh. And all of the little things God did to make that true for me and to make that true for you as a believer. We thought about God's providence. Well, Today, I want us to think about God's providence and blessing His people by meeting their earthly needs. One of the truths we see, and we see this here, right? What did they need? Well, one of the things they needed was food. Right? They needed safety from the famine. And what does God do? He orders all things mysteriously to make sure that they are fed. And just as God worked in Genesis to ultimately meet the needs of Jacob's family, so God works all things to meet the needs of all Christians. The Bible testifies to this truth again and again. Just listen to these verses and be encouraged. Proverbs 10, verse 3. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but He thwarts the cravings of the wicked. So the righteous will not go hungry. Psalm thirty-seven twenty-five. I have been young, and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor have I seen His children begging for bread. Psalm 23, 1. You already know it. The Lord is my shepherd, I what? shall not want. That word want literally means lack. I shall not have need. Matthew 6, Therefore I tell you, 
Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? The Bible teaches this truth again and again and again throughout its pages that God meets the needs of His people. Church history illustrates this. The Bible illustrates this many places. Uh, Remember the widow of 2 Kings 4. This lady, her husband had died and had left behind a great amount of debt. The woman had no money to pay off the creditors and they were coming to take her two children as slaves to pay off the debt. And this woman came to the prophet Elisha and told him what was going on and said, look, I I have no money. They're going to come take my children. They're going to make them slaves. And Elijah asked her, he said, what do you have in your house? It's a value. And the woman said, the only thing I have is a jar of oil. Right? Not, Not worth much at all, just a jar of oil. He told her, he said, go borrow empty vessels from all of your neighbors, as many vessels as you can find. Go tell your neighbors you need their empty vessels and bring them to your house. And and then what you're going to do is you're going to begin pouring your jar of oil into those vessels. And so she did. She gathered a bunch of vessels and she brought them to her house and she took her little jar of oil and she began filling up the first vessel and it filled up. And, and then she poured the second, and it, and it filled up. And then she poured the third, and, and it filled up. And she kept pouring, and she kept pouring. And, and every vessel she had brought, she filled up. And as soon as she filled up, the last vessel she had brought into her house, the jar of oil ran dry. The woman sold the oil and was able to keep her children. God miraculously working to make sure that the needs of her family were met. Think about the Israelites. Right? They felt God had forsaken us. Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt only to die in the wilderness? We have no water. What are we going to do, Moses? What does God do? Water from a rock. Does water come from rock? Water from a rock. Right? Moses, now look at us. We're going to die here. We're starving in this wilderness. You, brought, you should have left us as slaves in Egypt. At least then we would have had bread to eat. What does God do? Manna from heaven. Right? God meets the needs of His people. He cares for them. Christian history is full of those kinds of stories. I I encourage you to read good biographies that are just full of these stories of God working supernaturally to make sure His people are cared for. I'm going to give you just one. I mean, I I had so many illustrations to choose from here, and I finally just chose one. Because I told a bunch of stories last week, and I didn't want to do that again. So just one this week of God doing this. Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor's spiritual secret. Read it. Hudson Taylor, famous missionary, took the gospel to China. Uh, He really was the pioneer of taking the gospel to inland China in the second half of the 1800s. We're fighting the civil war over here in the United States. He's taking the gospel into inland China and China at the same time. And Um, Taylor's the man who said, if I had a thousand lives, I'd give them all for the people of China. When he was in his early 20s, Hudson lived in the slums of a city called Hull, England. 
And he lived in a, a slum area that was known as Drainside. That was where he lived, in the slums called Drainside in England. He was there because he was learning to practice medicine from a doctor there. He wanted to go to China with the ability to, to practice medicine. He, he was making preparations. He knew that life in China was going to be very Difficult, And so even as a teenager, he had already decided, I'm going to China with the gospel, and I'm going to do what I can now to get myself ready. So he took his feather bed, and he got rid of it, and he got a much harder bed for him to start sleeping on. He made himself start eating less than he had been eating before. Uh, he would go on Sunday evenings to a ministry in the poorest part of his town, and he would go and just be among the poor people, and he would hand out tracts, and he would pray with people. He had no idea how to speak Chinese, but somebody gave him a, co- a copy of the Gospel of Luke in Chinese. And so he took his copy of the Gospel of Luke in Chinese, took his English copy, and began trying to figure out the Chinese language. And so he was now at Drainside trying to learn from this doctor how to be a doctor so that he could go to China. And the doctor told him, he said, Hudson, at the end of each quarter... When it's time for me to pay you for your internship, when it's time for me to pay you for your work, you be sure to remind me to pay you. And rather wisely or not, Hudson Taylor resolved in his heart that he was going to teach himself to trust God alone. He said, I'm resolved. I'm never going to remind him. I'm going to wait till he remembers to pay me. And so one month, despite Hudson's prayers, the doctor forgot to pay him. And it continued going on for for days that the doctor did not remember to pay him until one day Hudson had left in his pocket half a crown, which is like one dollar. It was a very, very small amount of money. He has one dollar left to his name, a half a crown. And that Sunday night, an old man in Drainside came to Hudson and said, Will you come pray with my dying wife? Uh, This man was Irish. And most Irishmen were Catholics at the time. And so Hudson asked him, he said, why, why have you not called your local priest to come pray over your dying wife? And the man responded that he had called the priest, but the priest refused to come for less than 18 pence. And this man said, I have no money left. My children are starving. That's why my wife is dying. Hudson said that as the man was telling him this, it re- reminded him that all he had in his pocket was a half crown and that by the next night he would have no food for himself either. And he said all at once the fear of having nothing gripped his soul. He said, and I'm going to quote him, he said, somehow or other there was at once a stoppage in the flow of joy in my heart. But instead of reproving myself, I began to reprove this poor man, telling him that it was very wrong of him to have allowed matters to get into this state as he had described, and telling him that he ought to have applied to the relieving officer. His answer was that he had done so, that he was told to come at 11 o'clock the next morning, but that he feared his wife would not live through the night. Ah, thought I, if only I had two shillings and a sixpence instead of this half crown, I would gladly give these poor people a shilling. But to part with that half crown was far from my thoughts. I little dreamed the truth of the matter was simply what I I little dreamed that the truth of the matter simply was that I could trust God plus one and sixpence, but was not prepared to trust him only without any money at all in my pocket. In other words, it's kind of like if you had a twenty dollar bill in your wallet and it was your last twenty dollar bill. It's the last twenty dollars you have to your name. 
and you meet somebody who has starving children and a dying wife, and you're thinking, if only I had two tens, I would give them one of the tens. If only I had four fives, I would give them three of the fives. But he said, all I had was the half crown. And he said, I could not just give them everything and trust God to take care of me. That's, that's the situation here. He says, it will scarcely seem strange that I was unable to say much to comfort these poor people. I needed comfort myself. I began to tell them, however, that they must not be cast down, that though their circumstances were very distressing, there was a kind and a loving Father in heaven. But even as I said that, something within me was saying, you hypocrite, telling these unconverted people about a kind and loving Father in heaven, and yet you're not prepared to trust Him yourself without half a crown. I was nearly choked. How gladly would I have compromised with my conscience if I could have had a florin and a sixpence. I would have given the florin thankfully and kept the rest. That's like saying, if I had 19 20 ones, I would have given them 19 ones and just kept one dollar bill in my pocket. But he didn't want to let go of, of the half crown. To talk was impossible under these circumstances. Yet strange to say, I thought I should have no difficulty in praying. Prayer was a delightful occupation to me in those days. Time thus spent never seemed wearisome, and I knew nothing of lack of words. I seemed to think that all I should have to do was kneel down and engage in prayer, and some relief would come to them and to myself. You asked me to come and pray with your wife, I told him. Well, let's pray. So I knelt down. But scarcely had I opened my lips with our Father who art in heaven, then my conscience said within me, Dare you mock God? Dare you kneel down and call Him Father with that half crown still in your pocket? Such a time of conflict came upon me then as I have never experienced before or since. How I got through that form of prayer I know not. Whether the words uttered were connected or disconnected, I cannot tell. But I arose from my knees in great distress of mind. And that poor father turned to me and he said, You see what a terrible state we are in, sir. If you can help us, for God's sake, do. And just then, the word flashed into my mind. Give to him that asketh of thee. The words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And in the word of a king, there is power. I put my hand into my pocket, and slowly drawing forth the half crown, I gave it to the man. The joy all came back in full flood tide to my heart. I could say anything and feel it then, and the hindrance to blessing was gone, gone I trust forever. Not only was that poor woman's life saved, but I realized that my life was saved too. It might have been a wreck, would have been a wreck probably as a Christian life, had not grace at that time conquered, the striving of God's Spirit had been obeyed. I well remember how that night, as I went home to my lodgings, my heart was as light as my pocket. The lonely, deserted streets resounded with a hymn of praise which I could not restrain. When I took my basin of gruel before retiring, I would not have exchanged it for a prince's feast." So Hudson had learned to trust upon God for his provision. Now here's the rest of the story. 
Next morning, he wakes up. He has no money. He has no food. What's he going to do? His landlady comes upstairs to his apartment and says, this just came in the mail for you, and it was the equivalent of 12 times half a crown, and the Lord had provided for him. Now, the reason I chose that one illustration out of the hundreds was I wanted to say this. The truth that God provides for his people is not intended simply to encourage us. The truth that God cares for His people is intended to make us more generous. And it's intended to make us more risky. It's intended to make us more radical in what we are willing to do for the glory of God. When we believe this truth, it is a sweet security for us that frees us up to love at all costs. Here is our security, Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in Christ Jesus. Not God may supply your needs, not God can supply your needs, not God might supply your needs. My God will supply every need of yours. Do you rest in that security? Is there anything in your life that's out of God's hands? Do you believe that He loves you? Do you believe that He is a Father to you? Do you see the sweet security we live in? It's not resting in your bank account. It's not resting in your job, which might be here today and gone tomorrow. It's not resting in family and friends who might come to the rescue if trouble came. It's resting in the sweet security of God's providence. God will let nothing happen to me that's not ultimately for my good. He will take care of me. He will provide for me. And therefore, if all I have is a half crown and He needs it, I can give it. Of course, then comes the objection. And the objection is this. Sometimes the money doesn't come in the mail the next day. Right? Sometimes Christians do go hungry. Don't they? We read earlier, he said, you know, I I, I used to be young, now I'm old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken. I've never seen his children begging for bread. Does that mean that there's never been a Christian who has starved to death? Headline, 2011. 18 Christians starved to death by Islamic fanatics in Somalia. What do you do with that? How can God say He feeds His people, He meets their needs, He protects them, and then sometimes He doesn't? I'm done. You figure it out. No, I'm just kidding. I'm I'm, going to answer it, I promise. Here, Here is the key. Here is the key. The needs of the soul always take priority over the needs of the body. God will keep His children fed unless keeping them fed means sending them to hell. The needs of the soul take priority over the needs of the body. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 11? Some of the Corinthian Christians were being so tempted to turn away from Christ that God brought sickness upon them. He even took some of their lives, caused them to die so that they would get to heaven safely. We'll talk more about this next week. But once saved, always saved means that God works in mysterious and sometimes painful ways to make sure that His children will enter eternal joy. 
Jesus is the good shepherd, and if it requires a rod to get us safely into heaven, he will use his rod to get us safely into heaven. Why would God ever allow a Christian to starve? God would only allow that if keeping that Christian alive longer would only mean more suffering, more pain, and mainly more severe temptation to turn away from Christ in unbelief. God does not take joy in the misery of His people. He is a Father. Fathers, do you take joy when your children are miserable? God does not take joy in the misery of His people. Psalm 84.11 For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Church, God will not withhold from you any good thing unless He must withhold it from you to give you the better thing. The only time God will ever withhold anything good from you is when in that circumstance, the good thing is not good for you. Does that make sense? Does it make sense? Justin, I pray and I pray and my prayer isn't being answered. God said to ask and to seek and to knock and the door would be open and I keep asking and seeking and knocking and the door still closed. I'm praying in faith the best I know how, like James said, trusting in God, putting it all in His hands. The prayer's not being answered. I'm praying earnestly, like James said. I'm praying persistently, like Jesus said. Why is God not answering my prayer? Well, friend, if you are His and He is not answering your prayer, it is because He loves you. He sees what you do not see. He knows what you do not know. It may be that he understands that if he were to grant you the good thing you're asking for, it would ultimately do harm to your soul or to the souls of others. It may be that in another time, in another situation, he will grant your request. Keep praying. Don't stop praying. Keep praying. But always package your request with a very humble, Thy will be done. Because God knows what we need. And God will not withhold anything good from us unless He must do so to be truly good to us. There's so much more we could say about God's providential care for His people. We could talk about how it is God who ordains if we will marry, who we will marry, the kind of person we will marry, the circumstances of our our marriage, all for our sanctification. It is God who ordains if we will have children. If we have children, what kind of children will we have? How many children will we have? What will they be like? All for our sanctification. It is God who opens up job opportunities and God who closes job opportunities. It is God who does all of this and in all His providential working, He is caring for the souls of His people. It's not chaotic. It is orderly in his mind. He is working all things so that at the end of the day, every one of the sheep that he gave to his son Jesus makes it to heaven, blameless, spotless, a perfect bride. Do you trust this God? Do you trust him? Any any unbelievers in here, do you not want this kind of God as your God? Why would you not want? Let me close with this word of warning. I, I want to show you something important to close. I want to take a second. Look at Psalm 106. Psalm 106. 
I just want to show you something I think is very important as we think about this subject. In Psalm 106, the first 12 verses celebrate how good God has been to His people. Right? So verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 are just celebrating. Look at what God has done for us. Look at God's works on our behalf. See God's providential hand working all this good for us. Look at verse 12. Speaking of Israel. Verse 12. They believed His words. They sang His praise. All was wonderful. Look at what happened in verse 13. But they soon forgot His works. And from there, everything goes bad. Sin happens. Judgment happens. Church, God has made it so that one of the ways that we stay close to God is by regularly reminding ourselves of His good works towards us. It is when we fail to remember. It is when we fail to take notice of God's sovereign hand at work to bless us that we become prideful, that we begin to look to ourselves and not to Him, that we fall into anxiety or despair or stress or fretting. You and I as Christians need to be careful that we never forget to remember all that God has done for us in the past, all that God is doing for us right now, all that He has promised He's going to do for us in the future by His sovereign hand. We are to live every day in a spirit of gratitude. Even in the lowest moment of your life, you have a million reasons still to be thankful. Even the lowest moment of your life has come to you from the hand of a loving God who is doing you good. So take time to regularly recount God's good works towards you in your life. Praise Him for what He's done for you. Give Him glory that will keep you humble. It will keep Him elevated in your esteem. It will keep you God-centered. Love this God who has been good to you. Trust Him. Live in gratitude. And this will keep your heart warm and soft so that your life can be a great blessing to others in this world. Amen? Let's pray.